Hi, this is John, by the way, and welcome to my mini podcast. I love talking about these wonderful chapters in the Gospels. Today we're looking at Matthew 14, Mark 6, and John 5 and 6. And we all love these stories on the Sea of Galilee. And there's so many applications we can use for these to our own lives when we are on, you know, stormy seas. The story in Matthew 14 is enhanced by one little line of the same account in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, it says that Jesus saw them rowing against a contrary wind. Better yet, let me read it exactly. Mark chapter 6, verse 47. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. Verse 48. And he saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea. Now, the thing that's interesting here is if it is a contrary wind, they've probably brought up the sails. They're probably just rowing because it's too dangerous with sails when the wind is really strong. But I love that he saw them toiling and rowing, and the applications are obvious. We can think about how we are toiling in a contrary wind. I would say the year 2023, with all the social issues, political issues, everything swirling around us, <laughs> is a contrary wind if we are trying to, to live the gospel. And when I hear these, you know, boat, ocean, sea metaphors, I'm reminded of others in the scriptures. For example, in the Doctrine and Covenants, when the prophet Joseph Smith says, you know, brother, in a very large ship is benefited very much by a very small helm during the time of a storm to keep it workways with the wind and the waves. That's at the end of section 123. And that idea of if there's a storm, we need a rudder. We need a helm to steer. We need a course, a direction. And if we have that, we're going to be okay. Otherwise, we're just driftwood. We're just going with the flow. And these guys, these apostles, had been rowing against this contrary wind. But he saw them, and we can know that he sees us. Now, sometimes we wish he would come sooner. One of the things that I have really loved about this idea of the fourth watch coming between 3 and 6 a.m. were some comments that were made by Brother S. Michael Wilcox. He recorded a talk for Deseret Book called The Fourth Watch, and he gave other examples in the scriptures of people that had a fourth watch experience. Here's what Brother Wilcox said. He, he did a bunch of talks for Deseret Book, and eventually they put them into a book form. The book is called Walking on Water and Other Classic Messages. So I'm, I'm right now looking at page 104. Uh, Brother Wilcox said, I have the feeling that the apostles, if they could have chosen, would have had the Lord come in an earlier watch. I put it to you as I frequently put it to myself. When I toil in rowing against the wind, when the sea arises and I'm frightened and it's dark and the storm keeps blowing, and I want help, I want him to come in the first watch. I'm a first watch type of person, aren't we all? <laughs> but there's also something inside of me that channels my thinking to the realization that it is good to toil in rowing against the wind. There's something to be gained by exercising spiritual muscles that are stretched in facing trials and opposition. All right, we can accept that. But if he doesn't come in the first watch, he certainly ought to come in the second watch. However, it appears that we worship a fourth watch God. And it is important for us to realize 
that we worship a fourth watch God. Sometimes I pray, I'm still quoting Brother Wilcox, Lord, I know you're a fourth watch God and that I'm a first watch person. Couldn't we compromise and have you come at the end of the second watch or the beginning of the third watch? Wouldn't that be fair? But the compromise rarely comes, and in my better moments I know it's good that it doesn't. He's a fourth watch God. So, this is what I really appreciated about some other ideas, other examples in the scriptures of a fourth watch God. For example, take Joseph Smith's experience, Brother Wilcox says, At the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head. So, when did the Father and the Son appear? At, at the fourth watch, at, at the very moment when he was about to sink. Another one, in Genesis chapter 21, the story of Hagar. The water was spent in the bottle. She was out wandering in the wilderness of Beersheba with her son Ishmael. She cast the child under one of the shrubs, and she went and sat down over against him a good way off, as it were a bow shot. For she said, let me not see the death of the child. She sat over against him, lift up her voice, and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called out to Hagar from heaven, and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the bottle with water, and gave the lad drink. So, another example, Brother Wilcox says, is God comes when the water is spent in the bottle. And another example, 1 Kings 17, Elijah, when the meets the widow, bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread. And she said, as the Lord thy God liveth, in other words, I'm telling you the truth, I have not a cake, a handful of meal in a barrel, a little oil in a cruise, I'm gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. The very last meal, fourth watch, when the prophet Elijah comes. So, I've heard someone say, and I thought it was a interesting thing, and I think has a ring of truth to it, but it also is kind of a type of a statement, and that is that God is more interested in our growth than he is in our comfort. And we kind of like him to be really interested in our comfort, but sometimes he isn't, and he's more interested in our growth. And growth comes sometimes in rowing against a contrary wind and wrestling with those forces. As, as we all know. So, the fact that he came is great, and that's what we hold on to. He did come eventually. Now, Elder Holland, in another statement about this, talked about focusing on the Lord, because when the Lord came walking on the water in Matthew 14, Peter said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter did come, but as we all know, he began to sink. And I don't know how many steps he took. It would be so interesting. Hopefully someday we get to see the, the video <laughs> of what happened, how many steps he took on the water before he started to sink. And what I find interesting is it says when he saw the wind boisterous. And I've often thought, if Peter saw the wind, what did he do? with his eyes. Perhaps he took them off the Savior. So this is what Elder Holland said in your April 1998 ensign, a talk called Come Unto Me 
which was reprinted. He actually gave that talk at BYU in March of 97. So you can go to speeches.byu.edu and find it. But this is what Elder Holland said about Peter. While his eyes were fixed upon the Lord, the wind could toss his hair and the spray could drench his robes, but all was well. He was coming to Christ. It was only when his faith wavered and fear took control, only when he removed his glance from the master to look at the furious waves and the ominous black gulf beneath, only then did he begin to sink into the sea. And we could spend 10 more minutes talking about what those waves are, what they could represent, what the ominous black gulf beneath could represent in this world in 2023. And it's so easy to keep our eyes or to put our eyes on those things instead of focusing on Christ. Which reminds us of a a well-known statement that President Russell M. Nelson made recently. The joy we feel has little to do with the circumstances of our lives and everything to do with the focus of our lives. And so when our focus is on Christ, like Peter, he was able to walk on water. And when he took his focus off, Christ started to sink. Now, one thing I don't want to sound like I'm doing is being critical of Peter. I'm afraid I wouldn't have stepped off the boat at all. I would have been looking for a flotation device or something like that. But Peter was willing to step out onto the water, to put the weight of his foot on the water and start to walk, which is just incredible to me. Now, also in this in this chapter, I just wanted to touch on, I just think John chapter 6 is an amazing chapter because of the miracle of loaves and fishes. You know I did a talk called A Scriptural Countdown where I talk about the number symbols and it's just so fun to see how often they appear. And I don't want to state for sure that every time there's a number it means something, but I think sometimes they do. So I'm looking at John chapter 6 verse 9 when Andrew says to Jesus, there's a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? So I've written in my margin the number five and the number two, because I know that the number five is God's grace. I know that the number two is the law of witnesses. And if you've listened to that talk, you know how many examples there are of that. So Jesus said, make the men sit down. And they sat down, number about 5,000. He took the loaves and distributed to the disciples. And as you remember, in verse 13, they gathered them together. This is the fragments that remain, the leftovers. They gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above them, which had been eaten. 12 baskets. 12 is the number of priesthood power, the number of the tribes. We've already talked about the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years and who touches Jesus while he is going to raise the daughter of Jairus who is 12 years old. All these 12s in there kind of seem to point us to priesthood power. And so I've always thought how fascinating those numbers would appear. But in John chapter 6, we have this wonderful I am the bread of life sermon. And I have asked my students who have served missions all over the world, do they have bread where you served? And I haven't had anybody yet who've talked to mentioned a country where they served that didn't have bread. Everybody seems to have bread. And sometimes it's different. It's made out of different kinds of 
flour or its shape or the way it's created is different, but everybody has bread. And I just think Jesus used the best metaphors to describe himself. And here he says, I am the bread of life. And you'll remember, they said, hey, are you going to be like Moses who gave us manna from heaven? And Jesus said, Moses didn't give you that manna from heaven. <laughs> John six thirty two. Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. My father giveth you the true bread from heaven. He's saying, I am the true bread. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. And I think it's so interesting that in the sacrament, we, we remember, we, we even break the bread as he was bruised, broken, and torn for us, as the hymn says. Verse 38, I came down from heaven. He is that bread. Verse 48, I am that bread of life. Verse 49, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. The different, more powerful kind of bread. Now, you'll also remember that as he talked about um, eating or drinking his blood and eating his flesh, which we understand as a metaphor like the sacrament, they said, this is an hard saying. Who can hear it? Verse 60. John 660. This is a hard saying. Interestingly, we could spend another hour saying, what are the hard sayings today? There was a time when the proclamation to the world on the family came out in 1995 that it seemed very, of course, very matter of fact, didn't raise any eyebrows. Today, for some, it's a hard saying. And then this sobering verse, verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. That is just the best question. Where in the world would we go? What, what else is there? Who else is out there? Many philosophers over the ages that have said many wonderful things, but did any of them heal people testifying of who they were, that he, the creator, can recreate and heal people, that he actually died and lived again, and so many witnesses of that? And to me, one of the powerful witnesses that he was resurrected is the way that the apostles changed and became so powerful and so fearless once the resurrected Christ had visited them. It was such a testimony to them. And here's Peter saying, where else are we going to go? What else is out there? There's nothing else out there. And thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So I appreciate that idea. I don't know what people go to if they leave the gospel of Jesus Christ. It seems like it's it's so empty and hollow and cold and purposeless. And I'm so thankful for this and just to be able to talk about these things. We're going to have some fourth watch times. We're going to have some contrary winds. Many of us are in them right now. But he is watching us. He sees us rowing and he'll come to us. Maybe not in the way we want or when we want, but he will come to us. And he has the words of eternal life. Well, I hope this has been helpful for you today. I look forward to talking to you next time.